Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Thank you for joining us on Rational in Portland. I have Eli Arnold on the podcast today. Eli is running for city council, District 4. He is a officer with PPB, with uh, Portland Police Bureau. He is part of PPB Central Bike Squad, the most fire account on Instagram, PPB Central Bike Squad on Instagram. Eli is part of it. Every once in a while, you'll see him pop up. You can also find him at Eli for Portland on Instagram, EliForPortland.com to learn more about him. I know Eli has already been on my friend Andy Chandler's show. So that's called Northwest Fresh. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on YouTube. And Andy is smart. He was in corporate media for a while. He does a great job with production and video and all of his fancy equipment that I definitely don't have here. And he asked all sorts of great questions. So if you want a double dose of Eli, check him out over at Northwest Fresh, too. Eli Arnold, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Welcome to Rational in Portland. Thank you very much. So the question that is burning in my mind, and I know through a lot of listeners' minds, is why did you decide to run for Portland City Council? Because we, most of my listeners, certainly me, enjoy watching the goings-on on PPB Central Bike Squad on Instagram. I'm enjoying your campaign Instagram, too, where you talk very freely about what you're seeing throughout the city, and I appreciate that. But why leave Portland Police? Um, so, you know, I've, I've sort of dealt with these crises that are confronting the city for the last six, seven years, uh, face-to-face. And... You know, at some point it gets it gets frustrating. You're waiting. Okay, we're we're dealing with the thing, but where's the relief? How are we going to change how we're handling this so we actually solve the problem? And at some point, I guess I realized the, that help wasn't coming. And you mean from leadership? Yeah, I feel like we need to create the conditions where the work that we're doing can be successful. And I wasn't hearing anybody talk about things in a way that matched what I was seeing on the ground. And so at some point I was like, well, I guess I guess I should do it. And so I'm, you know, I'm committed to this place. I swore I would never move again uh, after I got out of the army. Where did you move from? Well, I lived here in uh, back in like 2001. I moved to Portland, and my wife's from Portland. Where did you move from? Uh, California. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I spent some time gone in the army, moving constantly. And uh, you know, it's no good. And I wanted to have a stable place for my kids and community. So we came back. And you have four kids. Yeah. Which is, I only have two, so that sounds like a lot. <laughs> I think that's really impressive. So you came back here to raise your family. Yeah, and I wanted to give them, you know, finishing out, say, being teenagers for the older ones, like a stable place so they can, that they might want to stay, you know, have grandkids, whatever, so we could have, you know, family and community. And so, yeah, I'm committed to the place, so I guess we got to do some work. Well, thank you so much for your service. And I really, not just with PPB, 
for your civic service and just running for city council because it's a big deal and it's a huge time commitment. I mean, I know you are part of Bike Squad, which works days, and you're sitting here today. Um, and so campaigning in and of itself is a ton of work, and I, appre- I really appreciate it. Tell us, you talked about how there's a disconnect um, between the city, what you hear coming from the city, what you see day-to-day. What are you seeing day-to-day? Because a lot of listeners have not been downtown to Portland, and they don't know what it's like. They don't see what you see. Yeah. Uh, let me get one disclaimer in, of course, uh, while I have please, worked down here as a please. police officer. I'm obviously speaking for myself and as a candidate uh, and Thank not you. for the Bureau yes, or anything. absolutely. Um, but yeah, so we see a lot of things. Um, you know, over the the last couple of years, I've really watched the rise of fentanyl up close. And I saw drug dealing and drug use downtown move from, I don't know, what's kind of like a user-dealer ecosystem like small scale, uh, to something much more organized uh, in that time. And so that's been one of the big uh, challenges of the, like the last year. Is what trying, does organized mean? Uh, like cartel connected, people who are moving substantial amounts, who are not users themselves, who are, who are working. Um, and so, yeah, these people kind of showed up downtown and uh, we really saw overdoses start to spike and um, a lot of harm from that. And so, yeah, trying to trying to put a lid on that and drive those people away um, has been a really really important thing. When did you see the overdoses start to spike? Uh, well, they've been they've been going up and up, but I would say yes, the and begin, media substantiates that. Yeah, the beginning of twenty twenty three was when late late twenty twenty two, beginning of twenty twenty three is when I saw yeah change in who was selling, like a change in the ecosystem. and That's that organization that you were talking about. Yeah, there suddenly started to be people roving around selling directly to street users. Um, and, and I think if you were downtown during that time, that's when we begin to see really large clusters of users using yes, it out in the open. I noticed that as well. And that was, like, that was kind of a weird thing to watch up close because, you know, in the past you might have seen four or five drug users hanging out in a spot. But to see 40 was sort of mind-blowing. Especially, are you talking about that space that they finally boarded up? That was, was that on Broadway? Uh, four in Washington. You're talking Excuse about the me. old. Excuse uh, me. Yes, yeah. thank you. Fourth in Washington. So I'd say, so the that the, was where I first started seeing forty people. Yeah, the center of open air drug use moves as yes, it as does. pressure gets applied to it. I would say about when it was at Fourth in Washington is when it really hit its like peak of like the numbers that we were seeing congregating. Uh, through some targeted arrests and uh, working on that. the dealers there, uh, that, that kind of broke up and moved again. And I, I think we've seen slightly smaller grouping since, but it's continued to move around and continues to be a problem. Well, and <laughs> it's not just from you. I mean, my understanding is in this office where we're sitting here recording, we're kind of sitting in the middle of it. We're in Fentanyl Central. Um, so I appreciate you. Um, what kinds of things are you going to do to change the messaging if you win the city council spot what kinds of things are you going to do as a city councilor to change this messaging coming out of city leadership that you think the public and and frankly the police should be hearing well i think we need to 
we need to look at the fentanyl issue uh, a little differently. Uh, like I said, there is some organization to this. Um, and right now, I don't, I don't think we really have a strategic plan, right? So up front, uh, we need to arrest dealers. And, you know, a way we can, we can help achieve that is by making sure we have capacity uh, for sort of the proactive policing that it requires. The next problem is that once we do arrest these people, uh, we can't let them just pop right back out onto the street. And generally, at this time, uh, release guidelines at the courthouse say these people are going to come right back out. And even that's something. Dealers, even dealers, yes? Uh, yes. By default, dealers are not held. So, bail reform went through uh, recently, Senate Bill 48. Uh, the goal was to not hold people based on their financial situation, which is great. But the problem is we were supposed to hold them based on their danger to community. And somebody who's walking around with 800 doses of fentanyl is a very serious danger and is killing people and, and should be held uh, as such. So that's not a city thing, but you know it's very important that leaders at all levels, like if this is where we're really seeing the problem, we need to be highlighting, hey, there's a problem here at, at the state level. And then there's a problem, you know, at the county level. And we need, you know, the district attorney, everybody involved here should be speaking up and saying we have to fix this. Yes. As a city leader, you can look around your city and you can tell people what you're seeing and put pressure on leaders who can fix those issues. Yeah. And you're right. We're not hearing that. I mean, we've got to hear people from within the city talking realistically about what our problems are. You talked about capacity for policing. I had Charles Lehman on from the Manhattan Institute who spent some time with Bike Squad, who's spent some time with, uh, frankly, you know, a number of people in the city, including city councilors. He, kn he knows a bizarre amount about how the Portland city government works. And he was talking about police to population ratios. Do you, as a police officer, or th is that meaningful to you? Oh, it's very meaningful to me. Yes. So okay. Portland's basically at the bottom. Uh, we're, I think, 49 out of 50 for cities in the United States. Uh, we have 1.2 police officers per thousand residents. Back in 2002, we had 1.8. So that's a significant reduction. Basically, as the city grew, uh, we actually let the um, police force shrink slightly. And, you know, that's a bad recipe for everybody. Uh, it means that we are shorting the police officers who are asking to take care of stuff because they simply are going to be overloaded and there's nothing more frustrating than not being able to, to do a job well, uh, to have the resources you need. And then on top of that, uh, people call 911, people who need help are getting shortchanged because they deserve uh, the time and attention necessary to resolve uh, problems. I have called 911 as a uh, resident as before, a citizen, and it's huh? frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, and I know some of what's happening on the back end, and I go, oh, man, I know nobody's coming for a while to this. And it's not because people don't want to, but we just don't have the capacity. Can you speak at all about the amount of people that you see popping out of jail? I mean, I've heard it described as a revolving door by people who are in corrections. Um, one of them is, is hopefully going to come on the podcast. But from what you just in general see, um, are you seeing people that you've arrested before once, twice, over and over again? Uh, yeah. So... I have arrested the same person twice in one day before in a single shift. Um, so you've book, arrested them, booked them, 
And within that same shift, you arrested them again. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have... Um, I have arrested a dealer before and then seen that person, same shift, show back up, start warning everybody else to look out that, uh, you know, somebody's watching. Um, and yeah, I think, I think sort of our default is we don't hold people very long, you know, and, and sometimes that may be a great choice, but sometimes it's definitely not. And so I think there, there really ought to be a revisiting of who's getting released and how fast. And how, like, I know you're not writing this legislation and you're not the district attorney, but in, in regard to leading on these issues, which I think is the job of somebody in city government is to look around and tell, like we just discussed, tell people who could have control over this or who frankly do have control over this, what you're seeing and what you think would be helpful. Because somebody who's interested in solving it is going to want to talk to you and they're going to want to know, what would you say to them? What would you say to the county? What would you say to the legislature? What would you say to the DA about wh what you want to see happen? Yeah, um, the default release needs to be changed. Um, there's probably a few ways to tackle that. But, you know, uh, we need the state to take another look at Senate Bill 48. Uh, we need to maybe take a look at our um, our laws around distribution of fentanyl. Uh, it should be categorized more like a violent crime, um, at least in in, in uh, court guidelines. I think release guidelines should reflect that. Um, yeah, it's just it's fundamentally different than a lot of other drugs, and you can see it when people start selling. When you see a high volume seller come out overdoses start popping up, you know, block that way, block that way. So I didn't think about that. When you interview them, they, you know, they know, they know people are overdosing and it's, it's especially upsetting to, you know, to see somebody sell a fentanyl pill for $1 to somebody who's basically dying on the street. I mean, it just, it's, it's so callous. Um, I, yeah, I've, I've seen some pretty extreme situations. Um, I've seen somebody sell to somebody holding a baby. Um, so, you know, these, these people are not, they're, they're hundred percent not concerned with who they're killing. And, uh, I think, I think we need to treat them as such. I guess one argument that I can anticipate is look, uh, and I've heard this from the U S attorney's office. Look, we can arrest all these people all we want, Eli's right, there's an organized cartel presence. Somebody else is going to pop up on that. I mean, you, pro you may see this to the extent anybody, let's pretend somebody's held, which they're not, but if they were. Um, and, and people who, my understanding is from at least the feds, that people who commit pretty substantial, certainly across state lines, crimes that they know about, and uh, um, they can arrest these people and Somebody else is out on that same corner. Um, do you think it's enough to just send the message that we won't tolerate this here and we will hold you? I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think people respond to incentives, right? And they respond to, to cues. And so if we create an environment where if you come out here and start selling on the street, you'll probably get picked up. And when you get picked up, you're going to get held. And um, you're not just going to be able to pop back out and then move to the next town over and go right back to it. 
that changes that changes the ecosystem. There's it, a new when calculation. It's tougher there. to do business here. It's tougher that to do business. business. Yes, we and, need to make that tougher. You're saying. And I have seen how actively going after these people really does suppress business. And you know, people, it, again, we might not be able to solve it 100. percent We can't solve homicides 100, percent but sure. we should be driving it down as far as we can. I see that when we uh, repeatedly go after dealers in an area, they stop doing business there. Uh, so Even much. if it's a revolving door? Yeah, they get the message. Do they really? Okay, that's, and but that's then they why, just move to another section. That's why it moves. But you still, you kind of disrupt the pattern. It has to reform. Uh, somebody ends up having to move to another city. It makes it harder. And, and they're losing product each time. So it, it has an effect. And, you know, it's what we got to do. And anything that makes... Uh, that effort more effective is going to reduce the amount of fentanyl in the streets down here. Off air, is it true that you told me you, I mean, am I remembering this correctly? You, you've you seen somebody that you arrested have been arrested 400 times? Yes. <laughs> like somebody was that was out on the street that you were actively arresting had a, an arrest record where they'd been arrested 400 times. Yeah, uh, I think his deal was just a, a heroin addict who every day was looking to support his habit and you know, he'd just been low-level victimizing people every day for a long time. Oh, pretty pretty shocking to see. And, of course, that was when, you know, heroin was heroin, I guess, and before fentanyl. Totally when, displaced it. When did you, yeah, when did you see fentanyl enter the equation? You know, um, I'd say about two years ago was where it really started to be something I was seeing all the time. So, yeah, by the by the very beginning of 2022... Um, and I, I can actually remember the first uh, place I dealt with it. There was a, a, it seemed like there was a, a trade in shoplifted property, uh, for fentanyl pills. And I, I didn't, I hadn't really seen much of them before. And it, I didn't, didn't seem like there was a regular supply up to that point or like a place where people knew to go get them on the street. Uh, and it just kind of accelerated, uh, quickly from there. And by the time, 2023 rolled around beginning of 2023 then it was just everywhere all day is it fair to say to any parents out there is it fair to say that in general if you're buying any drug on the street please assume it has fentanyl in it yeah uh i I wouldn't touch any street drugs uh there's there's fentanyl in a lot of it's so cheap uh some people deliberately mix them uh i think some people just sell fentanyl as other things because they sell those other things for a much higher price. Well, and we're hearing about these high school students who think they're buying Adderall and it's a fentanyl pill or they think they're buying, they think they're buying something from a friend and they don't know where the friend procured it. And it turns out it's not an oxycodone or it's not a Percocet. Yep. Seen plenty of fake uh, Xanax bars that were actually fentanyl. So yeah, very dangerous. Uh, Something I talked to my own kids about. Um, what is the message to, for the parents out there again, and frankly, I'm curious as a parent, what is your message to your kids based on what you've seen? Uh, well, I can tell you I've been lucky enough to take my older kids on a ride along before. Uh, I've got two young adult kids. Um, so that's a ride along. You've got to be 18 and up. Is that right? Uh, 16, actually. 16. With, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> with permission. That's amazing. Definitely. 18, you're good to go. Uh, 16, I, 16 can be done. I think, is like a scared straight episode. I yeah. mean, I think... If you can send a 16-year-old on a ride-along, um, they're going to learn a whole lot more about the way the city works than probably anybody they I, know. I feel like every 
you know, it should be like senior year civics or something. I agree. Everybody should go on a ride along. If I were to ever move to a new neighborhood, the first thing I would do is go on a ride along there. Um, you just yeah. get a different insight uh, into the place. Yeah. Um, so before you could take them on a ride along, let's say you're dealing with younger ones. Um, obviously, I think a ride along brings your point home. But but before you can do that, I mean, what were you telling them before you took them on the ride along? And what was your message about substances that they might be exposed to? Because we know they're all being exposed to it. Yeah. You know, I... I, I managed to get them on the ride along pre uh, fentanyl. So, oh, you did. Yeah. So, what uh, are you telling young children or parents who ask you, "What should my message be?" Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think you just got to have that straightforward conversation about. Listen, uh, drugs are out there. You you don't know what's in them, and you can totally die the first time uh, you try something. It's so uh, hard for us Gen Xers, you know, because like we lived through Nancy Reagan and we lived through just say no. And I mean, I want to say when I'm saying it, I, they didn't, my children didn't live through that obviously, but uh, they, obviously, but while I'm saying things like that, I want to say things in my head. I'm screaming. I, I really mean it. Like this isn't a scare tactic. I actually really mean it. You will die. Yeah. The only thing that's helpful and this is disgusting and scary, but it's true. The only thing that's helpful is that we live within city limits and we can just drive around and they see what happens when you take drugs. Yeah. I mean, we walk past people. We don't know if they're alive or dead all the time, nearly every day. I mean, I, that's one of the saddest things I've ever said in this microphone, but it's absolutely true. Yeah. I remember. Uh, and I don't I kick them awake because I don't know if they have a weapon. I don't know. I mean, if I called 911 for every body I saw on the street, I I mean, first of all, it would probably be busy some of the time. But second, I don't know that they'd send somebody for somebody on the street. I mean, I think they'd have to say, are they breathing? Did you did you tap them? Did you try to talk to them? Yeah. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. No, you, say? you know, my um, my youngest daughter, when the camps really started popping up all over Portland, um, she was very little. I to, well, um, I would say that's 2016. Yeah, so about 2016, I remember dr- we're driving in the car, and she would, she would always, po- she started pointing out homeless camps, you know, as we're driving, and uh, yeah, that's just sort of uh, the reality of like, yeah, what kids see just moving through the city uh, these days. So, Eli, in regard to your what drives you as a as a city council candidate what drives you to begin this new chapter of public service at least in regard to campaigning um what kinds of things are you focused on is it drugs is it homelessness is it both are there other things that you're thinking about that you that you really want to bring to city hall yeah so i think one area in particular that we've just failed to take meaningful action on, uh, that I've really been sort of dealing with face to face this whole time is homelessness. And I think, I think the public agrees, right? That's pretty much everybody's number one concern right now. That's what the polling says. And, you know, it's been very frustrating to watch the city deal with it from like a purely ideological stance and our failure to actually like get in there and see what it is and talk about it accurately has really prevented us from 
dealing with the problem. You know, you can't, you can't treat a disease without the diagnosis. And sure, housing affordability is very important. Uh, we need housing. But uh, homelessness is not like this monolithic uh, group. And so uh, a single mother uh, who is out of work has a different issue and a different need than a fentanyl addict who has a completely different need than an unmedicated schizophrenic. And so I would like us to start dealing with this problem in a much more pragmatic way. Um, Don't you think we need to make a distinction between the sheltered and the unsheltered homeless? Well, I mean, it's a very important distinction. Right. And so like the people you're interfacing with every day, these are the unsheltered homeless that are literally sleeping on sidewalks. Right. And that's being driven by primarily drug addiction and then some mental illness. So you think it's primarily drug addiction and some mental illness. The unsheltered, That's what you're seeing. Yeah. It, when you see the camps, you know, downtown or off the side of the highway, you go in there. Uh, in my experience, you're not, you're not finding people who are a couple hundred bucks short on rent each month, right? Uh, substance abuse problems, mental illness, or both is what's driving those. Um, How do you, is, is that based on, I mean, are you going in to these camps and can you please explain to people who haven't seen Central Bike Squad's Instagram, who haven't been downtown for a while, um, explain to us who you're primarily interfacing with on Central Bike Squad. Are you primarily interfacing with homeless people every day? Uh, yeah, Central Bike Squad deals with a lot of just street issues, which means a lot of homeless issues. What percentage of people would you say, just generally, I'm not going to hold you to it, are you dealing with who are homeless? Uh, it's 80% or more. 80% or more. And of those 80% or more, how many of them would you, uh, how many of them are engaged in a crime that you can connect to drugs? Just generally. Well, just generally. I will say that, right, you deal with lots of people yes, who aren't of necessarily course. engaged in a crime, of sure. course. Um, you might walk somebody, pass somebody and do a wellness check. Yeah, yeah. You might do what we just talked about and right. tap somebody and say, buddy, are you, I mean, I've seen you guys do it, buddy. Are you okay? But I will say for crime, uh, sort of on the street downtown, I would say again, probably 80% drug connected. 80%. See, cause I'm hearing from people. Uh, I, I know you are. <laughs> People who are not police, people who have not been on ride-alongs, people who do not spend the, the majority of their time downtown, that this is, A, this is a housing issue, that, B, uh, most street homeless people are not suffering from drug addiction, um, and, and, C, that we cannot connect most of these, I would call them quality-of-life crimes, or even, frankly, random crimes that you see, let's say on the max where those teenagers were stabbed, um, to drugs. Um, I mean, I know we, I know central bike squad kind of sees everything. Um, but I'm guessing you've seen some pretty, you, you haven't just seen low level things. You've seen some pretty serious things. Yeah. I've seen every kind of thing. Yes. So yeah. you've seen everything from, from, you know, the lowest level, what, a, I don't know, I guess a ticket for public all of that. drug use from the lines for life thing or whatever from the 110 measure to murder. Yes. And even with murder, um, do you have any sense of how many, just generally again, of how many murders you're seeing are connected to drugs? Uh, in Either somebody's on them or 
they're selling them or just in any way. Yeah. So my experience comes from downtown. Yes. Central and, yeah. Central Precinct. And, and I would say drugs are connected to the homicides I see. Most of the time. Yeah. One of the statistics I read in the Oregonian is that a third of homicides are homeless. Sounds about right. That really blew me away. I, I actually had no idea how many of them were armed or had weapons. I didn't know that. Where are they getting guns? Um, well, I, I, they're I mean, not I know all it's all sorts. Based. I know it's yeah, all yeah. sorts of stuff. <laughs> a lot of it's DIY. Yeah. So, um, but I know some of them have guns, right? Sure. And yeah. how do they get those? You know, it's funny. It seems like a lot of the guns floating around on the street that are illegal actually come from car break-ins. People who leave their pistols in their car and... I was told the same thing. Yeah, that's... In my experience, that's where most of them come from. So, I mean, I'm hearing things like we need to focus on crime, we need to focus on homelessness, we need to focus on policing and, and beefing up our police ratios. What can we do besides taking a relatively firm stance on things like drugs and trying to make sure that we incapacitate people who are trying to harm the public, therefore making things like recruiting better. What can we do from city hall to recruit more police officers? Well, uh, if you don't mind, if I dive back a little, because these are all connected, please. So it's tough to increase capacity, right? And due to the pipeline issues with recruiting police and retirements and everything else, that's a long-term project. One we need to commit to, to increasing uh, the ratio of police officers to population. Um, but in the, sh in the short run, what we really need to do is put structure around homelessness that creates the conditions in which all of the money we're spending, all the resources that are deployed can be effective. So, you know, right now we kind of have, uh, I just call it like free-for-all camping. Uh, there are basically no rules. We've just kind of thrown up our hands and whatever happens. And it's bad for everybody. It's bad for homeless people. It's bad for residents, bad for business owners. So what I would like to see is let's create some structure. And what I would like to do, because I think we need something quick. We need something uh, that's like cost effective. And again, that just supplements everything else. So what I, I would like to see us designate some places and say, okay, we, you can camp here. Um, and that lets us comply with Martin v. Boise, which lets us enforce rules. So, so we, you would have sanctioned campsites? Yeah, I would basically say, like, here's some areas we think where there's minimal impact. Now, you, if you go there... Where is there minimal impact? Well, there's going to you know, be some impact anywhere. But there's, but there's impact in having the free-for-all system. Agreed. So we'll say, hey, we're, we will register this little spot to you to camp by name. And sort of with that, though, we are going to ban all other camping. And so once you have a person tied to a spot by name, uh, that allows for some continuity. So uh, if they have a social worker, uh, if we're trying to get them into drug treatment, uh, we know where to find them. You can't really work on these issues, and our dollars are kind of wasted when you can't find the person day to day. Do they stay there? I actually don't know. I mean, I know you're interfacing with all these people, and you're seeing this stuff day to day. We have some sanctioned campsites. Do they stay at these campsites? 
I, you know, I don't have to deal with the sanctioned ones too you much. You don't. No. Do you have any understanding about whether that would actually work? Do they stay there? So the ones that we currently have, these like built up like, sanctioned ones, yeah, those are like the pods. Those are the... kind of expensive. Uh-huh. And, well, totally expensive. And, and, a, and a different deal. And millions and millions of dollars yeah. in those urban so, alchemy contra- contracts. So I would like something that's more of a stopgap measure. And then once we have, once we have these spots. Uh, which again, I think will will make all of our other resources work better. Uh, then we need to push county, and we need to really get the like the shelter space. You know, before housing, before any of that other stuff, uh, we need to have like, all right, we have capacity now. You can't be out on the street anymore. We have an ice storm. Great, we already have shelter space. Uh, let's not try to throw things together. Um, so, so I think we start with that immediate stopgap of here you are by name. We, we're tracking what your issue is. So if you're schizophrenic and that's the reason why you're on the street, uh, we can actually see if all these social services can help you. Um, another benefit to the stabilized population is it's no longer anonymous. And we, How do you make sure that you can do that without... I can just hear people saying now, um, is that going to interfere with people's rights? And I guess... Um, no, as long as you, what is it? Is it a law against camping wherever you want? Is that what this is? City ordinance. ordinance? Yes. And it has some kind of consequence, I would guess, because otherwise there's nothing, I mean, we can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, It's just going to happen. Okay. So, so it's an ordinance. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly we have the ability to gather names, right? And information. Yeah. And then, but in your experience, a lot of the time, these people don't have identification they don't have um can we to the extent they have drug issues if you were able to work with a da on this um and they were doing something under a measure 11 crime which is currently the only way you get into drug court in your perfect world are you seeing somebody who has drug issues being given drug court as an opportunity instead of jail uh, well, when it comes to drug stuff, right, uh, rehabilitation is great. If we can work toward rehabilitation, if we can make people go to treatment, fantastic. We, society needs to retain the ability to compel uh, treatment when a person can't do it for themselves. Um, I'm just thinking of ways to get these people identification. And I, I, I oh, think of drug okay. court as one of the very first ways and that one of the simplest ways to start putting together these wraparound services. Well, there's a very easy way to identify people. Police officers can identify people. Yes, you can. It's kind of incredible, and it's freaking uncanny, the kind of uh, memory that you have for faces and just even bodies from behind. It's Well, and having access to, <laughs> to databases uh, makes it easy. So if you're not in the sanctioned camping, I got it. this is a city ordinance violation, great. Do you want to go somewhere where it's permitted? Cool. Can you almost Let's always ID you. identify these people? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you can. This is you're you're telling me these are known people. These are these are in general. If we're talking about people who end up in a sanctioned campsite, yeah. this is a known quantity of people that you're dealing with every day. Everybody's had an ID at some point. <laughs> and but you're saying they are in this system. They're in the police database. Yeah. That means they have they probably have a record. Well, I, I or, mean, or even just a driver's license. They, they, if you had a driver's license in Alabama, police can access that. But how would you find that person in the database just by looking at them? 
Oh, you wouldn't just by looking at them. You'd say, I'm willing to register this spot to you. We I have to it. identify you to do it. You don't want to take this spot? Fine, but you can't be anywhere else. You're going to get a ticket or whatever is going to happen to you. Or you're going to get booked. Yeah. Or you have to leave. And then and then I guess uh, if they won't do it, you just you, you end up booking them based on, on that hypothetical ordinance. You know, we do the like the cleanup because it's like, right, this is not an allowed spot. Kind of like we're right. doing and now. You clean up every single one because if yep. you leave it, it just becomes that insurmountable garbage problem that we have. And they're not permitted to come back because, again, it, right now we're just doing the cleanup without stopping the yes. thing in the first place. Yes. So we're not going to allow any of this anymore. We're going to come through and we've come to clean. We're going to say, we got a spot for you. You can go to it or not, but you can't be here anymore. And we need your information if you're going to go to the spot. Yep. So that we can make sure to when, um, get you services. You pay the and, arts tax. Yes. If you have a house, you register by name in the city uh, when you rent, when you pay taxes. There's nothing wrong with expecting people to identify themselves with the place they live. Particularly if we're giving you a place to live. Yeah. We're, and, and Portlanders have been very it's generous. Not, yes. Very yes. generous with tax money. We need, and what's one thing that's kind of crazy is we haven't asked for anything in return. Right? We right. haven't it's said... To whom everything is given and nothing is required. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's my biggest pet peeve about a lot of this stuff. I mean, literally nothing. Um, no, you're right. And you're talking about a system that's actually the same as that. You're, you're not saying you would require these people to do anything. I, and I legitimately want... Like, when you work with these people, right, there's, there's some terrible, like, very sad cases. Like, yes. I would love to help these people. What we're doing now is not helping anybody. So, Have you seen somebody be helped by our system at any point since you've been working in Portland and what worked for that? And I know it's different for everybody, but to the extent anything works, what was it that works? Is it? You know, for a lot of, a lot I mean, of these maybe people, it's nothing. I don't know. A lot of the people who are sort of the chronic um, street homeless, it's kind of an ongoing process, you know, a cycle. Uh, so they'll have good times and bad times. You'll see them go into housing, come back out of housing. Um, I can tell you, I have had people come to me and say jail was what led to my getting sober, and now I'm working and I'm in housing. I've heard that from a lot of people too, unfortunately. Um, and I have also seen people go to the state hospital. Uh, Who for, doesn't seem to be taking anybody except real hard criminals anymore. Right. Actually, uh, I was just saying this the other day. I think it was we used to have 300-some people in there for civil commitment. We're down to uh, 13 because it's just, you know, people awaiting trial kind of situations now, don't which is crazy. Don't you think we crazy. need to change that too? Don't I, we need to change the civil commitment I process? don't understand. Yeah, we absolutely do. But I don't understand why haven't we heard once from the state, hey, we're going to increase our capacity at the state hospital. Because they don't believe in institutionalization. When, it's an ideological issue. When people need to go there, they need to go there. Um, yes, they do. I have been involved with somebody who repeatedly was at risk of killing themselves, killing other people. Mother was begging for this guy to get committed. We kept sending him to the hospital. You know, they kept letting him out. Finally uh, got him to like a civil commitment hearing and, uh, you know, they didn't take him. Yep. And I haven't seen him again. I don't know what happened to him. The but bar is way too high. Yeah, absolutely. It's way too high in this state. If I was in, in one of these situations, if I'm unmedicated and schizophrenic and sleeping under a wet blanket on the sidewalk all winter, like, don't just leave me there to die. That is not, that is not kindness. 
So my personal story is that my sister is a homeless opioid addict and my dad was homeless for a period of time. And the only way that he got off the street is he left for Nevada because he was following my sister around and he ended up in a veteran's home. But he never would have ended up there uh, if he hadn't been in Nevada. If he had stayed in the Pacific Northwest, we have all the, like you said, it's not an issue of money. We have all the money in the world. I mean, Sharon Myron will tell you, we've got so much money, we can do whatever we want with it in Multnomah County. Literally, whatever we want. Design a program. She can fund it. I mean, not her, like the chair, unfortunately, Jessica Vega-Peterson. But she would say, Multnomah County can fund whatever you want. I mean, that's the beauty of it. They don't need to ask for money. They They don't need a tax. They cannot spend it. It's the wildest thing I've ever seen in my life. So... Um, I think what's part of what's so crazy is we've got all these people that we claim um, to care the most about that we are leaving to die in the gutters and the streets. And any family member, I, I know I've heard from some former addicts who say, you know, I got help on my own and these that's the only way it works and people need to seek help on their own. But like you said, I've also heard from plenty, plenty, plenty of people and I am friends with some of some of them, enough of them, frankly, more than I can count on two hands, who say, I got sober in jail, I got sober in jail, I got sober in jail, I got sober through drug court, I got sober because somebody intervened in my life, I got sober in a hospital, I got sober because somebody intervened in my life and thought, I needed something, and I needed a social worker, and I needed to be triaged, I needed to go somewhere, and they picked me up off the street and asked me what my issue was, and or they reunited me with family members. We're not doing any of that. Yeah. Did you see an increase at all in drug use in Portland after Measure 110 passed? And I know this is just anecdotal, but I'm interested in your perspective. Because uh, you you're know, out there all the time. Yeah, I saw much more like visible drug use. Uh, there was already quite a bit of drug use in like the downtown core. That's where all the services are. Sure. Um, but I definitely saw a, you know, a big uptick in, in the very visible, out in the open, blatant drug use. You know, I, I overdoses think, have increased. I, oh, I know yeah. I know correlation doesn't equal causation, but just in terms of what we've noticed to be trends that seem to be working hand in hand, or at least to be in ta- in tandem or together, mm-hmm. um, I, I, overdoses that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I think five hundred percent since twenty eighteen, and it's you know when when I talked earlier about structure around homelessness, right? Uh, you know, we've had the recent issue with ambulance availability. Yes. And I have dealt with, it, dealt with it myself. Sharon Myron talks about it all the time. Wasn't a situation five years ago, but very common now. I think it's actually kind of driven by the homelessness issue. So as our homeless population increased, these people have very extreme needs. Yes. yes. I asked a, a paramedic. Needs. I asked a paramedic the other day just to confirm my experience, what he thought the percentage was of his transports that were homeless, and he said eighty percent. Um. So anything that we can do to sort of stabilize this population uh, would really free up capacity uh, for ambulance services, for police services, um, 911. So uh, I, think, I think that's the easiest way that we gain ground on, on all these public safety services is by reducing um, the demands uh, from the homeless community. Overdoses are a big part of that. Uh, so cutting off that uh, drug dealer connection, too. This is all really insightful. One question that I know is going to come up is why sanctioned homeless camps? Mm-hmm. Why not shelters? 
why not? I mean, like you said, if an ice storm comes, we can open up a shelter very quickly, very easily with, Mm. frankly, very few resources. Not that we need resources because we've got all the money we want. Um, Why not? Is it because, uh, I mean, what I heard, at least from the county, is a lot of people just weren't going to these shelters. Is that it? We've got to incentivize these people to go and sanctioned campsites seems to be the only way. That way we can say, hey, there's no barrier. Go ahead and do your drugs. Um, Well, so shelters to the degree they're built up are, are going to take a little more time. So well, kind of, although every time an ice storm shows up, they seem to put these things together <laughs> in a matter of hours. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, why is I think that? if we have a sense Isn't of urgency, wild? we can, why build, don't we have it? Yeah. <laughs> There's some ice on the horizon and these things are yeah. popping up everywhere. Meanwhile, everybody's, you know, falling dead of fentanyl overdoses, including high school students. And there is, like you said, there is no urgency around any of this. So in the army, (laughs) we used to build shelter for hundreds or thousands of people in a day, regularly. In a day. With just a bunch of 22-year-olds. And it's not like you all had some sort of enormous budget that was allocated. We just had a bunch of old tents (laughs) and, you know, not even as nice as Multnomah County. So nothing brand new from REI, you're telling me? No, no, nothing like that. So I... I guess I want that kind of quick, we have a space. Agreed. Here you go. And however that has to look, but you can be here. We got a space rapidly, like this, right now. And it's by name, it's not anonymous. And we will deploy our social services here. And yeah, I, I just think that is the immediate step. And then if we want to look at like, how do we, how do we improve this? How do we work on the housing problem? How do we, like, we need this first step to stabilize the population so we can actually figure out who we're dealing with. Uh, we got to finish out the built for zero thing where we're identifying their issues by name. Commissioner Myron is very, yes, she is very committed to that. And, and, and you know, we're not even close to where we need to be. And, and police could fill that list in no time. <laughs> Say more. I mean, you know, this is a population that's interacting with the police a lot, like we've talked about. Um, right. You know, I, what is I, the fear of involving law enforcement? Yeah. I just, it's incredible to me. How, if you're on city council, how do you deal with the county? Cause that's an issue, right? Yeah. You, you, city is writing a blank check to the county. And as we talked about off air, the city is not only writing a blank check to the, what we, what they call the joint office of homeless services, which is, you know, Eli is not joint at all. No. We write a blank check to Jessica Vega Peterson to do what she wants with it, uh, which seems to consist of, you know, foil and, and handing out tents and, and things like boofing kits, which, which unfortunately we've talked about extensively <laughs> on this show. But if you could at, at all, you know, figure out some way to send a message to the county um, I mean, would you do things like vote against the check that we are giving to the joint office, like Megas Maps did? I thought that was a really bold move. I, I was disappointed that other city councilors didn't join him. What would you do? Yeah, I think joint office of homeless services has proved ineffective. And so yeah. why? That's <laughs> yeah, just a wild understatement. And so if county's not going to do it, why hand over the money? Let's just do it ourselves. Let's do it ourselves. Um, and the other crazy thing is we're handing over the money they're buying tents with it, and then we're paying to clean the tents up. So we're paying for the tents. The tents are popping up everywhere. The county's handing them right out, right, left, and center. And then we're paying the city to clean these tents up and throw them away. Yeah. 
No one is talking about this. Yeah. You know, all of this... It's infuriating. I think sort of my third main concern for the city right now, right, is sort of that responsibility and accountability for how we're handling this massive amount of money uh, that taxpayers have been so generous to hand over. Um, But, you know, I live pretty near the Clackamas County line. When I go right across it, I don't notice a substantial change in services. And so to me, we've been very irresponsible uh, with these funds. So I think I think we got to be much more skeptical. Uh, We need to be a lot more focused on uh, accountability. We need to ask for things when we spend money. Shouldn't we be demanding that? I mean, yeah. shouldn't we be demanding all this kind of transparency that Sharon Myron's demanding? Shouldn't we've got the power of the purse? Shouldn't we be saying we're happy to write you this check? We just want this dashboard that tells us where every dollar goes. Yeah. And whether it's effective. Yeah. We we've spent enough. Uh we ought to have a lot of things that we don't have. Yes, we ought to. <laughs> um and I think people don't understand we actually have a, a homeless tax um that was passed what in twenty twenty? Um so it's not, it's not, that's, it's just all we do is throw more money at the, at the problem. We've yeah. got plenty of money. It's obviously, like you said, it's not a money issue. You can cross county lines. Yeah. N- nothing looks like Multnomah County. Nothing does. And I think this again is that being ideologically driven, it feels good to say we'll put the money there, but it's less comfortable to say, well, let me get in there. Maybe it's not all housing. Maybe drug addictions driving us. Maybe like we have to move away from just being ideology driven and get in there and actually make the hard choices and actually look at these problems like very honestly. And once we do, we can make progress. But if money could have done it, money would have done it. (laughs) That's exactly right. What do we do about this issue of people who, it seems like we cannot keep people working in this industry. And I'm talking about a state funded or a county funded industry that involves no barrier, I would say, or low barrier homeless services, i.e., let's say these unsheltered, or excuse me, these these uh, campsites, these sanctioned campsites. Are you envisioning like no barrier sanctioned campsites, like come on in here and do all your drugs here? No, and I think what I'm picturing is that's Im- tricky too. Is right? imagine like a lot, right? So this yes. is like first step. So we've got a lot. You've got your tent over here. Here is the section within this lot mm-hmm. where you can set your tent up mm-hmm. and that's your spot. So it's not actually like Are building there rules. It's not actually building infrastructure. Yeah. And, and I think the absence of anonymity will make it easier to pick out the drug dealer in there, pick out the sexual predator in there. Um, so we, we have totally a regular agree. problem with among the homeless population that, uh, there are people really victimizing a lot of people and it's very yes. hard to, Homeless hold victimizing homeless. Yeah. Yes. And it's very hard to hold them accountable, both because first you have to pick them out when everybody's moving all the time. And then you have to get that victim to trial yes. three months from now. And, and they have to press charges. And they where, have to be consistent. Where they will they be? They have to be sober. You, you have, have to, to find them. You got to find them. You got to prep them. And so, so many more people get victimized just because of the movement. So again, I think this is where just saying we know where everybody's going to be um, here's here's the basic rules now. Uh, we'll just pay dividends in like so many ways. I mean, if you're right though, and we're talking about like 80% of these people, nobody's going to these, Eli. Well, you know what? If they're people all going don't to jail. Go, that's they're literally on all going to jail. And so I guess the, the idea is, I mean, then the question is, 
oh, do, are we just pushing people out? Are we just pushing people somewhere else? And I guess I would say, well, the only other place places that allow, I mean, there's really nowhere else that allows what we allow, right? Because yeah. they've got some business and some commerce. Even San Francisco has some freaking business and commerce that they care a lot about. Yeah. And they have a lot of it, a lot more than we do. So does Seattle. So I can't really think of anywhere crazier that we'd be pushing them to. But um, aside from places like San Francisco and Seattle, maybe a, a, a sprinkling of L.A. I mean, certainly if you head over to Skid Row um, and some other parts, of course, I there aren't a lot of places that tolerate what we tolerate. So I'm, this idea that we're pushing these people, kicking the can down the road, there's just not a lot of places like this. I mean, there's nowhere that just has no rules. There's nowhere, but we we, <laughs> we seem to be the one place. Yeah, we experimented with it, and it hasn't worked. And, uh, you know, there obviously will be people who are not going to yeah. start behaving. Okay, but let's let's separate out the people who are ready to receive some kind of help who could use that stability, who, you know, let, like, let's make it clear. Uh, and a lot of it's about a signal, is it not? A lot yeah. of it's about a position, leadership, policy, and just a statement that we're not tolerating this anymore. This is a different place. Yeah. And look at the open air drug use, right? Like we signal what behavior is acceptable and well, people yes. follow. And so when we said, eh, we're not going to really do anything about using drugs in the open, they said, okay. So, Again, we send the signal, this is what's expected here. Uh, some people will follow. You know, most, most rule enforcement, law enforcement, uh, whatever, relies on voluntary compliance, right? We don't check every car all day That's long exactly for right. speed. Harvey Malk said that. Yeah, and so if we can just improve the voluntary compliance rate, like, that's a huge gain. And, and the first thing is we have to ask for something. And I think asking that you not be in the areas where it's not allowed and, the, and then follow uh, up with enforcement. Yeah. And and then the, there will be consequences if, if you do something else uh, will help that voluntary compliance rate. I think this the point that you made about how these aren't going to be no barrier sanction camps. I think that's really important because one of the issues that we're facing, I think, especially with that ridiculous Multnomah County, quote unquote, behavioral health center, which it never was anyway. I think if we I think with that places like that, you know, we are finding and this makes sense. We cannot find people who are equipped to run these things. I mean, you're running yeah. a no-barrier place. That's basically running Central Precinct, trying to control the behaviors of these people. I mean, even Central Bike Squad, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't even arrest your way out of it. They're back on the street in two seconds, let alone just being like a social worker and trying to get people to comply with some sort of basic sense of civility or rules, I think, um, is important because if we're going to have people working ostensibly, we will at these campsites that you're talking about, we need, we, there's gotta be some order in place and then some way to enforce it or some, or some police to call, which is why we need a higher ratio. Yeah. And we're not just talking about that for that. We're talking about police to call for an average ordinary citizen, right? Just like you did when you were just a citizen off duty and you needed to call 911 mm -hmm. and you needed a response. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we need to be a city that has some rules again and uh, an expectation <laughs> of uh, pro-social behavior. What did you, did you work the riots in 2020? Yes. Can you tell us at all what that, I mean, Nathan Vasquez came on this program and he, he painted a pretty clear picture of what that was like for him to the extent you can, and maybe you can't. Can you tell us what that was like for you? Yeah, I'll just tell you for my my personal experience. Um, it was incredibly frustrating. 
Um, you know, all I wanted was for people not to set buildings on fire. And like, uh, to the degree I could just not be involved and like, you want to protest? Great. Of course. But if, if, uh, we could stop having these conflicts, people could stop setting buildings on fire. We could just normalize it and you can say whatever you want. And, uh, I could go home and, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was really obnoxious and no, no bit more obnoxious than the red house, uh, incident. Um, just in, brief uh, us on that for people who have, don't know what the red house is. It was, it was a, it was an occupation, right? Yeah. It was, it was, like the, an, those people were armed. Yeah. Uh, so there was just a, uh, there house. was a standoff, right? Yep. There was a house up there where they bear, you know, built traps and barricades and all kinds of stuff and kind of took over a neighborhood and a house that had been foreclosed on and uh, Mayor Wheeler ordered it cleared out and then it turned into like a big violent scene and then he apologized to them I believe um, so you know the whole thing was just <laughs> he apologized to the occupiers the yeah. armed occupiers of the house yes uh, so you know the whole thing was just incredibly frustrating and it you know I and just, the riots were no more frustrating than that I mean, that was like, I think that was I mean, like I guess the, it was 189. It was a connected house. event. <laughs> yes, it, it was. No, they, yeah. they may have happened simultaneously. There was, it all blurs together. Yeah, it, it was connected. Um, yeah, you know, I just, and I know that there are people out there who needed assistance, who aren't getting it because all that stuff was going on. Right, because it eats up police resources. Oh, yeah. Like tremendous, and frankly, amounts. it was eating up ambulance resources because all these sort of, all different people were being injured. And yeah, you know, there's this there's this small group that just tries to insert themselves in every every protest, every anytime they get some political cover that want to go out there and try to set a bank on fire. I think it's important that you said that it's a small group because it I is. think there's a perception that it's the majority of, of Portlanders or that it's even a large fraction. And I agree with you. I don't think it is at all. And you've seen this, yeah. so you would know. Um, and I think press coverage reported on it rather accurately that at some point it would, I mean, certainly violent things happen during the day. And I saw really violent things happen during the day in 2020, but in general it would get dark and then there would be a small group of people that would stick around and, and ruin everything for everybody. Yeah. There. They're, and they're the same people over and over again. You know, a lot of times people have this idea about crime generally, that it's like evenly spread, right? That like, you know. Do they really? Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't. I don't like, they don't think different neighborhoods are more besieged by crime? Well, I think that like generally people, maybe some people commit a right. few more crimes, and some yeah. people a few less. And I, you know, it really is that there's a tiny percentage of the population that commits the vast majority of crimes. And it's there, you know, it's not random. You're seeing them over people, and over again. Yeah. People feel like, I, I think because they don't think about it and they don't have the experience with it, that they feel like maybe some, one day you wake up and you go, you know what, I'm going to rob a store today. And like, that's just not how crime works. And, you know, so yeah, it's the same people who drive this whenever we have protests, whenever we have, um, I don't know, uh, targets of opportunity for them downtown or whatever. So, you know, there's there's probably 20 real bad ones and there's probably another 100 that are kind of hanging out ready maybe to jump in. You know, it's not it's not a massive group of people. 
I, I agree with that. And I'm heartened to hear that. And I think it provides some nuance to your perspective, which I think is really refreshing and really important. And my guess is that in your everyday policing, you see all kinds of people. You see people that are frequent flyers that maybe could turn their lives around if they, I don't know, got sober or got on some medication and could be good people. Yeah, absolutely. Probably most, yeah, I would guess. There's... Uh, you know, you see all kinds of people and I mean, truly all kinds. And yeah, I mean, my family knows homeless people by name because they're such a daily part of my life. So when I go home and they ask, what did you do today? You know, I say, Oh, Ray's out of housing again. And, uh, he was, you know, out in the street and, you know, it's just, yeah, it, it is my reality. So it's not, it's not vague. Uh, are you able to do anything to help people with services? Are the police able to do that? So I can, I can tell you that uh, there's recently been like a pilot. I can tell you that um, Bike Squad with some Oregon State Police have been trying to, when they connect a, a drug user out in the open downtown, have been trying with, um, well, actually they're operating out of the BHRC, but trying to... The Behavioral Health Center? Yeah, um... Well, that's but, good. But basically, there's a uh, um, some social workers who are waiting on standby and attempting to come to the scene and try to immediately connect uh, people to services. Um, Is that working? Do you know anything about it? Uh, I can't say if it's working or not. Because um, it just started, and yeah, so you know, you're s- not noticing. Somebody would have to track on the back end and see. You'd have to look at the data, which we don't right. tend to collect. Um, but, you know, it's. Yeah. I, think, I think police genuinely want, like, want people to be well, don't want people in the alcove. Well, I just thought of this because I was thinking of police that I know in other jurisdictions and they, they don't seem to be limited in regard to the way that they help people that they interact with on the street. Like you said, criminal or not. Mm -hmm. And they generally seem to be able to connect them to people they know who can legitimately help them. Like you said, like if you had a working mental health system or a working hospital system and you saw somebody who clearly needed some sort of mental health triage, you would know who to call and be able to get them that. And I, I just feel like um, I, it's weird that you don't have that resource. You know, there's a ton of different uh, services down here. Yes, there are. And, Countless. And I mean, if <laughs> it's anything, it's, it's almost, it makes it complicated. Um, so I can tell you, obviously. Because none of them are connected. Right, the majority are nonprofits. Yeah, it would be nice if we there don't have was a database. More of a, a single yes. point of entry organized uh, deal where everybody had an iPad. Which again, maybe knowing all these people by name and them being able to say, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we we know where his social worker is. We right. know what he's already connected That's to." That's exactly great. right. Um, yeah, police are very free. One of the great things about being a police officer is that uh, I like to think of it as like a community dad. Uh, because a lot of what you deal with isn't actually criminal, you know? Yeah. And so it's more like you've just been deputized uh, by the community to go out and try to f- deal with stuff. And so and sometimes honestly, you're probably seeing just a bunch of people who are just like, you, you can see yourself in them, I bet. And at least on, I went on a ride along where I felt like, you know, some of these people could be me and they're just having a really shitty day. Yeah. Or, you know, a kid, somebody can't find their kid. I saw or, that too. There's an, you know, elderly or I saw lady. An, an, an unaccompanied kid that needed to, you know, they needed to figure yeah. out where he was going to go that night. Somebody with Alzheimer's who can't remember where they live anymore or, yeah. you know. So you deal with all kinds of things. 
And so, yeah, I think you, you want people to be well. You have a lot of freedom to try to try to fix things if you, if you can find the time for it. I, I once had a, a woman who she was living in an alcove and discovered mm. that she, somebody tried to report her missing a few years prior. And it turned out that her, she was estranged from her parents. She was from Kansas and they wanted, they wanted her to come back and she had some real medical problems and they set it all up for her. And, uh, you know, one of the great things, yeah, about being a police officer is we, we figured it out and figured out how to do it and get her back to Kansas and hopefully. That's amazing. Yeah. But you're probably limited in your ability to do that, not just because of resources available and whether somebody can articulate information to you, Pro- probably just because of your teeny tiny size and the amount of serious things you have to attend to, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you can do it when there's no more urgent matter. Yeah, yes. when you have a minute, there's, there's a lot you can do when you're actually able to connect the dots. On Central Bike Squad, are you zipping from urgent matter to urgent matter like I'm hearing Central Knights are doing? Uh, you know, it's it's sort of day to day. Is it? So, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's it's kind of unpredictable. But that's the point. You don't want an unpredictable day. You want people to be able to to deal with encounters as they encounter them and have that leeway. Yeah, you want that. You want excess capacity. Yes. Yeah, because you don't know what you're going to need. So yeah, you know, that's you, like like. 180 plus nights of riots. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then you would have some extra people to handle everything else that's going on outside of the core of downtown. Um, Eli, what are your other ideas that we haven't talked about? Cause these are all great. <laughs> you have a lot cause you've seen a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's really just about approach, right? Uh, we're going to have a big council uh, yes. moving to 12 people. And so I think one nice thing is hopefully we're going to be able to have like a wide variety of backgrounds and hopefully uh, expertise and that we will be able to draw from that uh, in a beneficial way uh, that we haven't been able to in the past. And um, yeah, and so I think primarily what what I'm offering is an approach and, you know, sort of my background, both from uh, uh, being a military officer and working in police and being a father. And like, uh, I just really think that we, we have to step away from the ideological, uh, get really grounded. I think local politics should be extremely uh, focused on that ground level, like livability community issues. We do not need it connected to national politics. I think that's poison. Um, I totally agree, but everybody's going to want to. Yeah. So I just want to do some throat clearing here because um, I need, everybody needs to hear it. Uh, they're going to be asking for it. So let's do that. Are you a registered Democrat? I am. Okay. I was guessing that that was the case, but because um, most people wouldn't run for Portland City Council if they weren't. Um, and I, I, I just think that's uh, really important for people to hear because yeah. I think right out of the gate, they're going to think you're a police officer, you're a Republican. Can you talk to people, talk to the listeners about why as a, I mean, people have short memories. I certainly do. I practically forgot things like Obama funded police officers, Obama funded drug courts. I mean, Biden supported the crime bill. He's our president. He very well, if this matchup happens again, be our president again. Um, 
you forget. I mean, yeah. Bill Clinton, the '90s. It was a lot of that was about crime. Um, Democrats seem to have, at least in Portland, for whatever reason, decided that dealing with crime uh, must be a Republican issue. Um, what caused you to go into policing? So I mentioned earlier uh, my experience with um, with the military. So as I'm being dragged around the country and around the world, constantly moving, you know, me and my family, we couldn't have friends that lasted more than a year. We weren't connected to a place. And it, it just seemed bad. You know, it seemed bad, like it was bad for my kids. Went to Afghanistan a couple times, saw, you know, the sectarian violence, saw the breakdown in communities. And I started thinking, like, this is a really important thing. And then I started to see... Uh, in the U.S., you know, there was some concern, too, that, like, we were starting to lose some of that cohesion. And When was this about? Man, I'd say, you know, it, it really struck me from, you know, 2010 to 2016 was sort of, like, this period, right? Uh, huh. You know, and I think we've got a lot of different stuff happening in there. Um, we certainly do. <laughs> and, and, and then increasingly, I felt like our politics turned toxic. And so what I wanted to do uh, was just to get back here and just commit to the place, invest as much as possible in the community. And so I, I got here, and I was like, I'm going to find a city job or something. I think the first job I applied for was uh, to head a Portland's Community Garden Program. Uh, Amazing. And uh, I'd run a What if you had gotten that job? I, Did you get it? Did no, you do no, that? I did. But what if you had? I mean, think about the trajectory yeah. of your life. But I think that's amazing. So I, you just you want to do public service of some yeah, sort. Yeah, yeah. I ran a community garden too in uh, Savannah, Georgia, which was the last place I was stationed in the army. That's great. And uh, yeah, it was it was nice. So I was just looking for, for something meaningful to do, and uh, this is kind of post Ferguson, and I'm like, you know, policing is really important, right? It's really important work. That's kind of like on everybody's mind and these the days. And the post-Ferguson stuff did not turn you off to the idea of policing. And why is that? No, I mean, it just, I think it highlighted that this was like really important work and it needed to be done right. And By good people. Yeah. And, and you sensed like, this is actually a job I could do correctly. And I had, yeah. And I felt like, yeah, I could do this thing. And I'd gone on a ride along I uh, some years prior. And I hadn't had a great opinion of uh, police prior to that. Uh, I think I'd always wow. thought, you know, I'd always thought of them as like high school football players who were like looking for a career. But when I went on a ride along, yes, it actually wants to quote, the bully who quote unquote wants to protect <laughs> and serve. Yes. I mean, you know, I just I didn't really know much about it. And I went on a ride along and I was really impressed. Uh, so that got me thinking about it. I didn't really know what the job would look like. And then I was just very impressed by the job itself, uh, because there are many jobs where you have autonomy and agency and you're dealing with important things. And so, you know... Uh, That's interesting, because a lot of people, I think, believe that policing is like the military, and it's very top-down. Oh, and you're it's saying like, you have a fair amount of discretion. I, I cannot tell you how different policing is from the military. It's like the exact opposite. It's very bottom-up, actually. Is it really? Yeah. In what sense? Uh, so, you know, if you're a police officer uh, here in Portland, I can tell you, you're going to go in. Well, Portland's also very different, right? I mean, most people will tell you it's very different from other agencies. Like the training yeah. is, I what from what I've heard, the training's much better. Yeah. From what I've heard, the quality of people are much better. You're going to find a lot of people who have college degrees, who have master's, at least I have. Oh, yeah. I've encountered people with a lot, actually, way more than I thought ever thought I would, with master's degrees. Yeah. I, I can tell you, uh, 
I think the officer is responsible. This might be in her area, or maybe she's just south of here. But, you know, she was an immigration lawyer, uh, and she is an immigrant, and, like, that's what she did before. So there's amazing people. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you, know, you know, my rather long experience uh, just really made me think differently about it and into the, t- to the bottom up thing. Uh, you know, you, you might see your boss or your supervisor right at the beginning of the day and then you leave on your own and you go figure out where you need to be, go figure out how to handle problems, do what you need to do. Most days you're not even going to see them again. Uh, you know, you're the trusted agent. Go, go figure this out. Um, so it's a big responsibility. Was that scary the first time you went out? It's, it takes some adjustment to get used to the role because, because that's everybody, a lot of responsibility. Lo- when everybody looks at you, you know, oh, and yeah. you're Especially wearing a now. thing yep. and how do you, I don't know, how do you, I don't know, hold the, the public gaze in that way in, in like make everybody feel good about what's yeah, happening. Especially in inner Southeast Portland. I don't know. Do you have a technique? <laughs> I mean, I think you learn a lot about, about yes, how to you do sure it. Do. I actually, uh, <laughs> me and a buddy of mine have joked about writing an article called the policing is a performance art. <laughs> uh, and because it must be right. Oh, it is. Because you know, you want to present a yeah. certain, you want, you know, you want to present, uh, your, your all of PPP. And people are always in a certain light. looking when you're out at a scene at you, and they might only get that two seconds passing by in a car, right? But if you're standing uh, facing the, the victim, uh, they might think that that's the person that you're arresting, or that you're. But if maybe if you stand shoulder to shoulder with them and look the same direction while you're writing down what they're saying, like in that moment, they just see it differently. And so, figuring out how to like, how do I message? this, you know, so that people understand it uh, the way I'd like them to. It's always been kind of an interesting thing. So PBB is the only uh, police bureau you've been part of. Yeah. And what, are you retired from the military? Are you active? No, I just got tired of going to Afghanistan and decided to uh, (laughs) get out. If you were married, your wife probably did too. Yeah. Um, And then, so what rank did you retire? Uh, I was a CW2. I was a helicopter pilot. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I mean, PPV is exciting. I don't know that it's that exciting. Maybe oh, it is. Bike squad might be just as absolutely. exciting as the helicopter. I got to tell you, I've I've have seen I've seen a lot more uh, as a Portland police officer downtown uh, than I ever saw in Afghanistan. I'm gonna sit here for a minute and let that oh. mic drop. Oh, I are you serious? Of course. And that was during active wartime? Yeah, but I mean, you know, the kind of war that was going on. And uh, you certainly see things, um, but you I see. I assume you would see You things. see every kind of thing down here. And you see it, um, you see it up close, and you see it, you know, inside of people's homes, and you see it near your home, and you, like, it's, it's very different, and it's constant. Uh, there's no years off, you know, back at home. There's no, there's no, you know, I, I kind of imagine like, uh, imagine if veterans, uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan had to go back, uh, to Kabul or back to Baghdad to go to sleep every night, you know? And it's like, when you're a police officer, you, you're still here, you know, whatever bad things you've seen, like they're still, they're still here. 
Uh, and you're living in the city. I mean, I yeah. know a lot of people chastise anybody who's part of Portland Police who doesn't live in the city. But what I will say is, if you're doing this day after day or night after night or both, um, I, I challenge anyone to do it. I, yeah. I think it's commendable that you live within the city. I think it's important. Um, but also, it's not like I don't understand people who don't, especially people yeah. with families. Before I started working as a police officer, I was of the mindset that, like, of course you should have to live in the city. And then once I started doing it, I realized why I think most people don't want to. And it really is that you build up a, a like, an, there's, like, an emotional layer to the landscape that doesn't exist for other people. And, again, like I was talking about with, like, PTSD and things. Like, I can't drive a single block down here without seeing something terrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you're just gesturing to the window yeah. in the office that we're recording in. Oh, yes, like that's I've, right. I, I can't walk down that block without seeing something terrible. I oh, can't yeah. walk, Eli, I can't walk uh, less than 50 feet to my car without some, seeing something terrible yeah. on the way here and on the way back. Yeah, and when, you, when you've seen so many things over and over and you get called to all the worst things, you yes. know, it's tough to let your kids go play at the park when you know some things that have happened at that park. And so that difficulty of disconnecting from that, I think, makes a lot of people want, want a little separation. But uh, I really like where I'm at. I love Selwood, and uh, I'm not leaving. And not only that, you're sort of, in a way, you're doubling down. Like, you're just, you're doing more public service. You're just changing the way that you do it. And yeah. I thank you. I mean, I, I'm sad to, I think I speak for everybody uh, who is pro-police when I say, and, and by that, interested in some law and order and some civility. When I say that I'm sad to lose a police officer if you're elected, but on the other hand, I think it would be a big deal to elect a police officer to city council because of your perspective and because of your what you've seen and because you've literally walked this city in a way that no one on city council ever has. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you, you know, you spoke about doubling down. I think my intent uh, when I moved here was like, I'm all in. Oh my God, you're and, all in. Like you're more invested in any, almost anybody uh, I know. And I know that the major obstacle to my joining the race was my wife was very concerned about people coming to her house and vandalizing it. And you talked it about and, that on your Instagram. Yeah. I found that very powerful. That was after Renee Gonzalez's parents' car was firebombed. Yeah. And I, you know, it took her some time. I had to, I had to give her some time with that. But, you know, I just told her, like, it's, it's just unacceptable to me uh, that we would let a few people like this dictate like civic life and like, you know, I don't want to have gone from Afghanistan uh, and have worked as police officer uh, and then like just, and then just give up uh, on this, you know, like I do do not want to concede defeat uh, to some ridiculous people. It's amazing that you said that because when I hear, when I talk to PPB officers about why they're still on, part of PVB, despite how few colleagues they have left and the way that the city has changed over time, um, they say, they actually say the same kinds of things. They say, I just think it's really, they say everything you said. I This is a familiar refrain, I think, in PPB. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in my experience, I have heard, what I hear is uh, relatively smart people say, I am committed to the city. I want good people to to 
be police officers. I don't want to cede my job to somebody who is not as conscientious as I am, who doesn't care as much about the city as I do, who doesn't care as much about the well-being of citizens and crime victims, and frankly, even people they arrest that they interface with that they don't want to arrest again. Yeah. Um, they care about all those things. Is Has that been your experience with other PPB officers you've interfaced with? Yeah, I think that's accurate. You know, and it's, there's so much need here. There's so and much need. You know, it feels like you'd be turning your back on, like, the people who keep calling. There's no shortage of demand. Uh, there's a lot of people who who need somebody to show up, and, yeah, I don't want there to be nobody answering. Eli, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is important to talk about? You know, I think we've covered um, sort of the big issues. Again, just let's get back to the practical uh handling of like day-to-day life and livability um, and step away from sort of the ideologically driven stuff. Um, You know, and and beyond that, uh, basically, if people are interested in having me talk more about this stuff. um, Yeah, can people do house parties for you? What does that look like? How how do, what do they do? Get on your website and fill out a form? Yeah, Uh, you can get on the website, uh, eliforportland.com, spelled out with the uh, F-O-R. Uh, you can get on there. You can email me. Uh, you can fill out the Great. form. So they can contact you. If they have any questions, yep. they can just contact you on your website, Eli for Portland, Eli, F-O-R, Portland.com. Yep. Get on there. Uh, you know, help me out with the fundraising. That's the initial part of the campaign. Got to be competitive. Talk uh, to us about the matching funds. So what is it? $20 and under is between five and $20 is matched. Yeah. So the city will match, uh, up to $20, nine to one. Nine to one. Did everybody hear that? There's no, as far as I know, there's no other city like this in the United States. Uh, I think San Francisco has a similar program. I mean, it's incredible. Um, Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, know, your five bucks is $45. Yeah. Uh, $20 is worth 200 to the campaign. Five is worth 50. So it's a big deal. Uh, The first thing you have to do is have 250 Portland residents donate. And then, then you start collecting matching funds. Uh, So that's a critical first step. And then I think, yeah, uh, house parties. Uh, I'm going to be trying to rotate through all the different neighborhoods in District 4. And um, I think it's important that you go outside. Once you do that, look, if anybody, are you interested in going outside your district? Because I actually think people who care about Portland are going to be promoting candidates that are common sense in every single district Yeah, because they, we need to be thinking long-term you guys, we need to be thinking about the makeup of this council and what you want to see in city hall. And I don't care if you live in Eli's district, if any of this resonates with you, you're going to give them, give him $5, buy him a cup of coffee. That's going to be <laughs> matched by nine. If he gets up to a certain amount of donors and tell your friends and send them this episode and send them the one he did on Northwest fresh on Andy Chandler show. You can find that on Spotify or YouTube. And I think, um, have them go to his website because ultimately don't we, I'm just speaking to the audience, but we all want to see, I think, common sense people in, in city council and who cares what district they're in. As far as I know, you can donate to anybody in any, I look, actually, I, somebody asked this question specifically officially, and I don't know if you've already heard this, Eli, but anybody within any district in the, in Portland can donate to you, Eli, and they can, that will qualify for small donor matching. It absolutely will. That's exactly right. And I intend to donate in all four districts. So, because I want to see the best possible city well, I council. I think that's really important. Um, 
yeah. So I think I think it's a great way to help shape the makeup of city council. You may not be able to vote in every district, but you can help make sure that people qualify for uh, funds so that they're competitive. Um, yeah, and I'm totally willing to go to other places. I uh, actually, the Lentz Neighborhood Association reached out and asked, Fantastic. asked if I would come speak to them uh, here in a couple of weeks. So I'll be going out there. Um, yeah, I'll go. I'll go wherever. I think there's a lot to talk about. And uh, just let me know. We'll figure something out. I think that's great. Okay, what else do people need to know? Obviously, we know you have a website. That's how we can find you. We can find you on Instagram. And I think it's the same. I mean, I mentioned it at the top of the show, but I just want to Everything's Eli for Portland. Yeah, Eli for Portland. So you just type it in. You can even type in Eli Arnold and he'll pop up. And then his website is also on that Instagram. And he's got some great videos just about his experience policing in general, his uh, messaging. He's out and about in the city. He talks about, frankly, he talks about voting. Now, we're doing ranked choice here, so um, can you just remind us? It's going to be three people from each district, right? Yep, three per geographic district. So people need to start talking or thinking about their one through three. Yeah. And then my understanding is stop there unless you've got other people that you're absolutely in love with. Don't list somebody but what I've been told is don't list somebody you're not in love I with. I wouldn't list any, anybody you really don't want. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's your I, understanding, uh, the, too. The, yeah, don't just start listing. <laughs> See, and I think yeah. that's the issue here. And that's where single transferable vote comes in and screws everything up and all this trickling down of votes. Stop it. Pick your top three people. Or if you're absolutely in love with four or five, write them down. But for Pete's sake, don't you dare start writing down people that you don't want to see in City Hall. Or start ranking them. Please don't rank them. Yeah. I mean, they shouldn't appear at all because then votes aren't redistributed to anybody that's not ranked, yeah. right? They have to be ranked to be distributed. Is that your understanding? That's my understanding. Okay, well that's what that's We're what I'm gonna I see how this well. all goes. Now, if I hear anything different <laughs> This thing is the, the most Byzantine, crazy thing ever. But if I hear anything different, I'll let everybody know. But that was that seemed to be Vadim Mazursky's message, too. And, of course, he was on the Charter Commission until he realized how crazy it was and he, he quit. But I, I think put, that's, yeah. I put an explanation of the districts and, you did. Uh, and that's on rank your Instagram. choice on the Instagram. Uh, yeah, uh, I really I think, appreciate that. And I think people, right, there's going to be an education process to, like, how does this all work now? Uh, so I'm trying to learn and trying to pass it on. Uh, for everybody out there so that we're all ready uh, to shape this thing. Thank you, Eli. I really appreciate you coming on. This has been a great conversation. Everybody, if you're interested in more, you can go to Eli for Portland, F-O-R, Portland.com. Thank you so much.